the whole talk tonight, Deuteronomy 12 through 26, is our text. And um, if, John, we have a technical issue. Do you see that? Okay, real quick. All right, Deuteronomy 12 through 26 is our portion for this evening. And if you were to just boil the whole thing down, okay, to one idea or uh, sentence, it would be live a consecrated life unto God. And so I just want to say that story, the preaching this morning, all of those things, if you listen to the uh, JJ's memorial, which was mentioned, I think you should do that. It's also very helpful. It's just showing, I think, in many ways how to do that, right? You don't give up a child for the good of the child unless you're living a life consecrated unto God. We're all naturally selfish, right? And so for now, I'll go off of this. Got it. All right, Deuteronomy 12 through 26. Let's just ask the Lord's help, uh, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, we do ask that you would help us to feast upon your word and to, uh, to truly grow from it, we pray. Deuteronomy, in some ways, is a foreign text to us. We pray that you would um, help drive it deep into our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And if somebody would also look up Exodus fifteen 17. I'm going to have somebody stand and read it, and I'll just say it. Um, so underneath that first slide was specific covenant stipulations, which is uh, a summary of what's contained in those 15 chapters of Deuteronomy. And so uh, Mr. Charles taught last week general covenant stipulations that really drove toward the heart and spoke generally about loving the Lord, and these are very specific laws. Okay, but first, before we dive right in, some context, all right? So we could go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, really, for context, but we'll fast forward all the way to the people leaving Egypt in uh, and eat the Exodus, and then crossing the Red Sea. So those are probably some pretty bad pictures that don't really depict what we're trying to get at. But the one on the left there, leaving Egypt, that's the people sorely oppressed in Egypt. So they had been fruitful and multiplied in Egypt and became numerous. And the people are oppressed and enslaved. And so they cry out to the Lord their God, and their God hears. Their God's our God. He hears. And he delivers them. You know about the ten plagues. You know about all that. But they go to the Red Sea. The Egyptians are in hot pursuit. And what happens? God parts the waters. They go through the waters to safety and salvation. The Egyptians pursue, and they're judged by God in the waters. Right? So after that, you come. uh, The next slide, it'll say a song, testing, failure, and lots of mercy. And that's a good summary of chapters 15 through the end of chapter 17, okay? So what you have in uh, the first part of Exodus chapter 15 is this beautiful song that the people sing to the Lord, uh, praising Him for the redemption that they had just come. And they even mention in that song the fact that God's going to bring them. There's this allusion to the promise to Abraham to bring his people into the promised land, and they sing that song. So if somebody would read that Exodus fifteen seventeen text.
Okay, next, uh, next bullet point there. So, in 1522 through 1716, the people show that their heart doesn't really believe what they had just sung, right? Even that's the allusion to God bringing his people into the land promised to their forefather, Abraham. And they prove over and over again in 1522 through 1716 that they don't believe it. And I'll just walk you briefly through what happens in, those, in that section of Scripture. They come to the waters of Mara, and they're bitter, and they can't drink it, so they complain. Then they travel a little further, and they don't have any food, so they complain again. Then they travel a little further to a place called Rephidim, and they have no water. And what do they do? Well, they quarrel with Moses. And the word is actually a little stronger there in that text. And Moses is actually afraid for his life. It gets so bad. And God's response to their every act of rebellion is really uh, an extravagant display of his mercy. So those are three acts of rebellion, and God responds with six acts of provision and mercy. He uh, provides water at Marah by casting a tree into the waters. Then they travel a little ways, and they come to this beautiful oasis called Elim, and they camp there. Then he provides quail. Then he provides manna. Then they get to Rephidim where they quarrel again with Moses and they, he provides water from a rock. And then the Amalekites, which you can dial up Esther, right, who was preached last week. Haman the Agagite, uh, ancestor of the Amalekites, right, who have troubled Israel since at least this time. The Amalekites come to do battle against the Israelites and God gives them this spectacular victory over the Amalekites. So it really is. Peter Inns has this excellent quote in his commentary uh, on Exodus, and he says this, if any need convincing of the grace of God in the Old Testament, they need only look here. Constant rebellion and constant merciful provision from God. So then they arrive at Sinai, okay? And in Exodus 19 is when they arrive at Sinai. Exodus 20 is when they're given the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. Then uh, they're given from 2022 through 2333 what's called the Book of the Covenant. So the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant, they essentially, they are what make up the covenant that God makes with his people at Sinai, okay, his people Israel. Now, what's important for our study, okay, is the next bullet point, which is two things that are important for Deuteronomy 12 through 26 to remember. One the people of Israel that received the covenant at Sinai are a stiff-necked and rebellious people, and they die under God's judgment in the wilderness. So Moses is now preaching to a new generation of Israelites, and just like what Mr. Charles taught last week, he's just pleading with them to obey. Moses, who's also not going into the promised land because of his own rebellion, pleading with this new generation of Israelites, obey, 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 obey. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not to be redeemed. They had already been redeemed. Not to earn favor, right? The whole point was you've been redeemed. Now live a consecrated life to your already redeemer and the second important thing for us to remember when we dive into any portion of deuteronomy is that deuteronomy well our portion 12 through 26 is an exposition of the book of the covenant in exodus 20 22 through 23 33 okay those two things are really important because moses is not simply restating what's been said in the book of the covenant it's not a simple restatement it's a pleading it's like it's very sermon-esque it's this uh 
begging almost of the Israelites to obey. And it included in these laws are regular references to rejoicing as they do it and loving the Lord their God. And we'll see some of that. So to dive into Deuteronomy now, that's good context, I think, for where we're at. But Deuteronomy structure, and this is according to Peter Craigie in his commentary. There's an introduction, 1, 1 through 5. The address of Moses, historical prologue, 1, 6 through 4, 43. The address of Moses, this is our text this evening and Mr. Charles's last week combined, 444 through 2619. And that is one address. And the next two are also one address. So it's a little weird that they're broken up, but in this structure, four and five are a single address of Moses. So there are three in Deuteronomy. So the address of Moses, bullet point four there, blessings and curses, 27.1 through 29.1. And then five, the address of Moses, a concluding charge, 29.2 through 30.20. And then the continuity of the covenant from Moses to Joshua, 31.1 through 34.12. So that's just an overview of Deuteronomy and kind of where our text falls. And next, here's, an, uh, I think, a very helpful from Daniel Block structure of our text, 12.1 through 26.19. So the nation's direct obligations to the Lord, 12.2 through 16.17. The offices through which the Lord will exercise his kingship, 16.18 through 21.9. Family law, 21.10 through 22.30. A reminder of the boundaries of the covenant community, 23.1 through 8. Regulations regarding many different aspects of Israelite life, and that really is a hodgepodge of just all sorts of different laws regarding all sorts of different aspects of their life, including some things regarding worship of the Lord. And then six there, further instruction for worship, 26, 1 through 15. So this quote from Daniel Block I think is helpful. Apparently, taking cues from both the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue and the Book of the Covenant, Moses begins his exposition with the vertical dimensions of covenant relationship. Now, can anyone tell me what the first commandment of the Ten Commandments says? Where are the kids at when you need them? All right. Can anyone tell me what the first three commandments deal with, vertical or horizontal? That's right. And the rest deal more horizontally, and they flow from the first three, right? So Moses here, as he's doing an exposition of the book of the covenant, takes cues from Exodus because that's what he's really preaching from. That's the content. He's uh, preaching the law to them again, right? And he takes those cues from the Decalogue and the book of the covenant and begins in 12, 1 through actually the whole chapter of 12 with this vertical dimension. He actually ends there too, which we're going to see in just a minute. Okay, <clears throat> so where are we going? There's a lot of background. I know that's real fire hydrant tea. And uh, I'm very, I'd be very happy to share this PowerPoint presentation with you if you want all of that structural stuff, okay? So you can just ask. I knew that was going to be like, whoa, but okay, here we are. Where are we going? All right, one, we want to get two handles. You know, we obviously can't deal with 15 chapters of Deuteronomy in two weeks, right, let alone one session together. So we can't go in depth at every place. So we're going to try to get two handles okay, for dealing with the section as a whole. So that is, I'm hoping that when we get done here, you can take these two handles, go home at your dining room table, read some weird law about your oxen, which you don't have, and uh, apply it to your life, right? Say, we'll see what's going on here and be able to sit there and ask the Lord for help to apply and actually be able to apply. And then you will tonight use these handles uh, to interpret three of the laws, two of them being 
quite strange probably to our hearing. Okay. Two key texts. I said two handles. They are, the, they are text. All right. So two key texts that the others are related to. And these will be more difficult. There we go. I'll read them this way. Okay. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 7. It'll be on two slides. Hear the word of our God. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their ashram with fire. And you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling. And there you shall come. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There also you and your households shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has given you. This is the second key text. So that was the first one, Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 7. That's the very beginning, the first seven verses of our section. These are the very last verses of our section, okay? 19 is the last verse of chapter 26. This day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart, with all your soul. You have today declared the Lord to be your God and that you would walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments and his ordinances, and listen to his voice. The Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession, as he promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments, and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made for praise, fame, and honor, and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. So those are our two key texts. What I'm saying is everything in the middle, it's all a bunch of specific laws, and everything in the middle relates to those two texts. So you can go read about uh, something weird. I can't dial something up right now in the text and just say, okay, how do I interpret this, and then how do I apply it to my life? And I think if you look at it through the lens of those two texts, you'll be able to do that just right at your kitchen table without all of the information that you can, you know, you can go get it in commentaries, really detailed commentaries, a lot of people giving you reasons why these laws exist. These are the reasons. Avoidance of idolatry. Don't live like the pagans around you. Live a consecrated life. In the end, I gave two handles. You could really just give one and say the last text, right? Live a totally consecrated life unto God. Okay. Some important things to know about our uh, two key texts, and we'll start with chapter 12. Okay, the first thing is that chapter 12, in essence, is about exclusive loyalty to the Lord our God. Okay? Centralized worship at the place that the Lord will choose is emphasized. That's important because uh, it also says you're not going to worship him under every green tree and wherever you want. Well, that's exactly the way the Canaanites worshiped their gods. They had open-air sanctuaries scattered out everywhere, under every green tree and on every hill and everywhere, right? And he's saying, no, 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 no. 
when you come into the land, you're going to destroy all that. And you're going to worship me in the way I say at the place that I command. <clears throat> the other main emphasis in 12, 1 through 7 is avoidance of idolatry, which those two coincide. Our hearts are so prone, just like the Israelites, to idolatry that if we were just allowed to worship God any way that we want, we'd build a golden calf too, right? And f- try to figure it all out on our own and worship idols in the end. So there's a quote from Miller. He's written a really good book. Um, on ethics in Deuteronomy. He says, chapter 12 is, quote, a sustained polemic. Now, that word means um, an attack, a verbal or written attack against something. A sustained polemic against the immediate threat of Canaanite religious practices, which is, it's so clear that they need, and it's also so clear in many ways that we need, but you see again and again and again the Israelites' failure in this particular regard, adopting gods, even King Solomon, who we'll talk a little bit about later, who marries many foreign women and then adopts their gods and builds high places for them in uh, God's uh, land. So next bullet point there, this is not a new law. And this is important to emphasize. The uh, overall intention is to induce loyalty to existing covenant law. So again, this is not a new law. And it's not a simple restatement. It's a pleading of Moses, a sermon to obey the law that was given to their fathers at Sinai who were killed under God's judgment in the wilderness. What is in view is Israel's occupation of the promised land. That much is pretty clear, right? God's going to set up his place of worship in Jerusalem. We know that. All right. I think there's one more quote on this slide, uh, and it's Jesus, thankfully. All right. This is reminiscent of what Jesus said in Matthew 4.10 during his temptation. I think this is a really good summary of our entire section of Deuteronomy. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Of course, Jesus is the only one who's perfectly lived a life under the law and then took it for us to the cross, suffering God's wrath and rose again. And it's through uh, the filling of the Spirit now that we can obey him. Okay. Um, now, just this is the second key text, and I'm going to look this way again so I can actually read some of it. Um, and I've just highlighted some things in this second key text, okay, uh, just to emphasize uh, quickly. Um, in the first two highlighted sections, 17, the red, and the beginning of 18, the light blue, it's uh, you've declared that the Lord is going to be your God and that you would listen to his voice, that you would obey him. And the Lord has declared you to be his people. Okay, verse 19 there, the darker blue highlighted section, and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made. That's what he's going to do for Israel. He's going to set them high above all the other nations that he has made for praise, fame, and honor. Who do you think gets the praise, fame, and honor? God, right, not Israel. And he does the same for us, his church. He has blessed us in so many ways, and the whole purpose is that he would get the glory. He would get the fame. He would get the praise. He would get the honor. You shall be consecrated. That's just a really good summary. That you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God. That's a really good summary of the whole section. These laws exist for Israel to set them up so that God will be glorified through them as uh, his light spreads to all nations as they're a consecrated people. Okay. Now, kind of more to the nitty-gritty. Three laws, okay, brief explanation, and some application. And the three texts that we're going to consider are Deuteronomy 14:21c. You'll see in a minute why c and not the others. Deuteronomy 25:11 through 12, and Deuteronomy 17:18 through 20. And the first two are really weird. You can go to the next slide, John. Um, 
I know that when I read, right, the first thing that I did uh, in preparation for this is just read the text, right? And I came across things and just thought, what in the world is that about, right? I don't have a clue what that's about. Well, here's the first one. Maybe. Well, I can tell you what the text says. We're going to read all of that uh, verse. The last part of the verse says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Okay? That's what they're told not to do. And it's at the end of a verse that we've put in there, right? But you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk there at the end of verse 21 in chapter 14. All right? The prescription on boiling a kid in its mother's milk remains a riddle. So there's some encouragement for us. The best commentators say, we don't know what this is about. So then Tige, who's a Jewish commentator, actually, um, says meat boiled in sour milk was probably a delicacy. So they don't really know for sure if it was a delicacy, but we do know that it happened, that people did boil meat in milk, not necessarily its mother's. Two possible explanations are typically given. There are many more that you could go find. People are really creative. But um, one, it arises out of a humanitarian concern. That is, doesn't it just seem kind of cruel to take a young goat and then boil it in its own mother's milk post-slaughter, right? It just seems like, we sh- like a mean thing to do, right? And I'm not sure that that's a totally wrong concern in the Scripture, and in fact, we see a little bit of that uh, in some places, even in Deuteronomy, but it's probably not the main one here, okay? A polemic, too, this is probably the main one, that is a written or spoken attack against a Canaanite practice. So again, this is about avoidance of idolatry like the Canaanites practice, which relates to our two texts. Live a consecrated life unto God. Don't be like the Canaanites and worship just anywhere. This prohibition is also found in the book of the covenant in Exodus 23:19, in the midst of laws specifically regarding the worship of God. Now here's a quote from the upcoming Teleos study. I just stole it right from the Teleos study. What are we to make of verse 19b to, quote, not boil a young goat in the milk of its mother? That's how it's worded in Exodus. It seems to have been a practice of Israel's neighbors, as is suggested in a Ugaritic text. So it may be that this injunction is a polemic against pagan practices. Now, here's the takeaway. That's why it's highlighted. And it relates to our two key texts. We are once again reminded that God's covenant people then and now should be holy, set apart for the Lord, and lived lives that markedly contrast with the pagans around them. So I think that you can just take the two key texts and read that weird thing in the middle and, and do exactly that, right? Come to that conclusion. And, uh, but that's the, that's the big takeaway. Live lives that markedly contrast with the pagans around us. That's exactly what we should be doing by trust in Christ, filling of the Holy Spirit, and then obedience to God's Word, a filling of our mind with God's Word. All right, the second one. This one's really weird, which is one of the reasons why it's been chosen. Okay, it even reads weird. All right. Um, If two men, a man and his countrymen, are struggling together, and the wife of one comes near to deliver her husband from the hand of the one who is striking him and puts out her hand and seizes his genitals then you shall cut off her hand. You shall not show pity. Again, that's one that when I read, I thought, hey, I thought, what? And then I thought, why not, right? Why not? Why can't she defend her husband in that way? Well, 
there are two reasons at least, okay, particularly for the severity of the woman's punishment, which point to why the law exists. One, the reference to the man's genitals as his appendage of shame. Now, that is really a pretty um, woody translation from the Hebrew. That's just the way it reads in the Hebrew. His appendage of shame suggests the issue is the woman's shamelessness and immodesty. That's from Daniel Block. Now, the second one comes from Meredith Klein. He's written a very brief book on Deuteronomy that I think is really helpful. It's called Treaty of the Great King. Two, these verses concern the man's, quote, dignity as God's covenant servant, who in his circumcision bears in his body the sign of the covenant. The act forbidden includes contempt for the covenant sign and not just indecency. Both are probably at play, indecency and disdain for um, the covenant sign. So what is the principle that really undergirds the law that we can get at in light of our two texts, right? Do not be idolaters, 12, 1 through 7. Worship God as he chooses in the place that he chooses, 12, 1 through 7. And then the last text, be consecrated unto your God. Well, the takeaway, if you can go back one for me, John, thank you. Do not walk shamelessly and thoughtlessly in the world before God. In other words, live a life wholly consecrated to God through Christ. And it is only through Christ that we can do this, right? The Israelites tried to do this on their own, most of them. And we know what happens, and we know what the New Testament says about that. Complete and utter failure. The law exists to point to sin, as it were, right? And it did. But for us, we've got one who's won the righteousness for us, Christ, and his death, burial, and resurrection, and his life that's been given to us, and now we've been filled with God's Spirit and given the whole canon, his entire word to live by in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are to be, quote, these are two uh, brief texts from the New Testament, sober in all things, and to conduct ourselves, quote, in fear during the time of our stay on earth. And I did think about when that Maggie story was happening, this is what I thought about, actually. Okay, so... The Maggie story is a good example of one who does not walk thoughtlessly in the world before God, right? We should not do that. I think he honored the Lord with his actions. All right. The next law. So those are two. This is the third, 17, 16 through 20. This is a law about the king in Israel. Okay, this one will be less weird to our ears immediately, but it's about the king in particular. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel." Now, this law portrays the king as subject to God's law, just like his fellow countrymen, okay? He is to, and this was very plain, handwrite his own copy of the law to read all of his days, and he's, when he's writing it, he's to be in the presence of the Levitical priest, 
okay, to ensure accuracy. Though, and this is true, we don't want to make too much of this, okay? You can't make too much of what the Bible does not say, okay? But it still may be telling that it is never said that any king in Israel ever does this. It's never recorded that any king does this, okay? And if you can find it, please tell me. We'll correct it publicly. <laughs> I searched, and I don't think it's there. Okay, let's look at a familiar text in light of Deuteronomy 17 through 18. Solomon and Sheba. Really, the, the takeaway here is to say this is probably a fairly unfamiliar portion of Scripture, and if we... Uh, would get in there and know it really, really well. It would help us read so many other portions of our Bible. We have been told, and it's true, that the Pentateuch as a whole, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, lay the foundation for our faith as Christians. Everything in the whole Bible, is the whole foundation's laid there. And so it's really good to get to know that portion of Scripture. Well, this one, even just 12 through 26, can help us read this text, for instance. So 1 Kings 10, 26 through 29, and verse 29 is the last verse in the chapter. Okay, that's important to know because we're also going to read 11.1, the very next verse, and then 4 through 8. So it all flows together. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. Also, Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q. The king's merchants procured them from Q for a price. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And by the same means, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of the Arameans. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Now, all of those highlighted sections relate to the law read in Deuteronomy. Every single last one of them. Okay, but go to the next slide if you would, John. This is the final verses there for when Solomon was old his wives turned his heart away after other gods and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been for Solomon went after Ashtoreth the goddess of the Sidonians and after Milcom the detestable idol of the Ammonites Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh the detestable idol of Moab on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the, of the uh, sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now this is right after the Solomon and Sheba story, okay, which is typically always uh, shown in this super, super positive light. It builds to these verses, same chapter, that's the way the chapter ends and the next chapter begins. All right, John, if you would. So though the text in 1 Kings 10 is typically handled in an almost totally positive light, the text builds to this very, very sad note. In order to know this, we've got to know Deuteronomy 12 through 26. If we don't know that that law exists, we won't be able to get the subtleties that the writer of Kings is getting at with regard to Solomon. So get in this portion of Scripture. Everything in it is about, and these are our two key texts, Fidelity to the Lord who has redeemed them and us, shown by obeying him and avoiding idols. The application for us then is the same as it was for the kings in Israel. Become intimately acquainted with the Lord through his word and show that you love him by careful obedience to him 
And again, this can only be done through Christ, who truly obeyed the law and has given us his righteousness. We've been redeemed by his blood and filled with his spirit. So we don't necessarily obey all of those individual commandments, but we have lots of commandments in the New Testament. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So 20, 12 through 26 of Deuteronomy are all about that, serving him alone, okay, which is what the laws are all about in Deuteronomy 12 through 26. I don't know what we look like on time, but that's all I have, so I'll pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we, uh, we admit that we need your help to think through all of these sections of your word that in some ways are foreign to us, and we need... Um, we need to become more familiar with them. So I pray that you would help us with uh, several things. One is um, the desire to dive into these places. Two is for clear eyes and a clear mind to understand them. And three is through them to enjoy growth in love to Christ and growth in the grace and knowledge of him. We pray it in Jesus' name.